Welcome to the State of Women Radio Network, the world's leading voice for women and girls who are transforming private equity, venture capital, crowdfunding, angel, and impact investing. Subscribe to our podcasts, join in the conversation on Facebook, and find all of the information you're looking for at thestateofwomen.com. Now, here's Women Investing in Women and Girls. Welcome to Women Investing in Women and Girls on the State of Women Radio Network. I'm your host, Michelle Jaffe. And I'm Anya Bardwatch. And we're thrilled to welcome our guest today on the show, Lauren Mylan, who is an entrepreneur, investor, marketing expert, author, and co-star on Quit Your Day Job. Lauren, it's great to have you on air. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Michelle and Anu. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it's our pleasure. So, Lauren, your career has, you know, run the gamut. You've done so many impressive things um, in, in such a short number of years. Um, but first, I want to st- talk about uh, entrepreneurship. It seemed to be the first thing that you were involved in in your career. Um, and I read something really interesting that this whole passion for entrepreneurship started at a very young age with a lemonade stand. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, at a young age um, of 11, to be exact, I had this burning desire to be an entrepreneur and to own my own destiny and to call my own shots. And, um, you know, I really kind of found that in something super simple, which was in making lemonade and also iced tea, but it started as lemonade. And then we, you know, kind of expanded our offerings, if you will, into, into iced tea. But it was, you know, an experience that allowed me to you know, make money, control my inventory, learn to be a salesperson, and also really reap the rewards of, you know, making money from your own business. Um, and taught me the very early, super, super simple skills of what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Absolutely. And, you know, as a young age, maybe many of us have had, you know, a lemonade stand, you know, you get the mix, or you get some lemons, and it's fairly simple. But then after that, you transitioned into having your own winery, which is much more complicated. Um, and I was just wondering what made you take that leap of faith into something that might have been, you know, untreaded, unknown territory to you? You know, the uh, vineyard and winery really started as a real estate purchase. And um, it was a wonderful real estate investment that I then turned into some sort of agricultural purpose, if you will, that has a variety of different incentives. And when looking at the other options of what would really, um, you know, A, conserve the land and B, promote um, an agricultural purpose that also had some sort of cultural, um, you know, purpose as well. It, it was in making it a vineyard. There were other vineyards in the area. This Thomas Jefferson's Monticello is a region um, in that particular area of Virginia. And I said, oh, gosh, this would be beautiful. We could sell grapes to other wineries. And so for the first two years, you know, I sold grapes to other wineries that were making award-winning vineyard-designate gold and double-gold wines out of my fruit. And at the end of the second harvest, I said, I'm not going to sell my grapes to you anymore. I'm now going to make my own wine. And so at this point, I was 21, and I self-funded the build-out of a winery and a tasting room that ultimately opened to the public August of 2007 with the 2006 vintage. So... Um, 19 when I started the vineyard, 21 when I started the winery, 22 when the wine was in the bottle and um, the tasting was open to the public and, and began to operate as a fully integrated vineyard and winery business. So this makes you the youngest vin- vinter? 
Yeah, it makes me the youngest self-made winery owner in the country. So, you know, it's oftentimes a business that you see passed down through family members, not one that you see people starting from scratch, one that certainly lacks innovation. So I think it's always funny to look at what I'm now, you know, working on and doing in the startup space and the technology space because operating a vineyard and winery is probably the most antiquated industry in contrast to (laughs) to technology (laughs) and startups. So who's running it now? Uh, the vineyard's been sold to a, to a private family that's just operating it, um, you know, as, as something that they're using for their own, you know, wealth building purposes. But, you know, it was it was a lot of work, and people think that, you know, having a vineyard and winery was glamorous, and you know, it's it's not that it's not that glamorous because it's it's part agriculture, part wholesale, part retail, part manufacturing. Um, you know, and, and it's a lot of farm life. And so you have to deal with a lot of different aspects, some of which you do and some of which you do not control, such as Mother Nature, um, that just make it complicated. And, and then you, you oftentimes get into this this kind of paradigm of, well, if I want to make this more of a business, do we want to make this more of an events business? And so a lot of these wineries really thrive on, you know, doing lots of big weddings. And when I started the business, I said, I really just want to make the best wine out there that's possible. And I want to be known for making making just spectacular quality wine. And so I didn't ever really want to sell out and start doing all the other, start all the other ancillary things that other winery owners find themselves doing. You know, Lauren, I'm just thinking to myself here, I'm 19 years old right now. And you were talking about doing all of this when you you just came into your twenties, you know, what was it like for you to um, seek funding and to make all these business contacts with, you know, the, the wholesalers around you or the producers or even then bottling your own wine? How did you do it all? I mean, I, I ended up joining a lot of the organizations that were both in the state of Virginia and the region of Monticello. So I very quickly not only found myself going around and meeting the other owners um, and managers of other properties and other vineyards and other wineries and introducing myself and beginning to establish relationships and rapport, but also in, you know, taking a, a very um, hands-on, integral role in marketing and brand strategy and development at the Virginia Winery Association, um, at, you know, the Monticello region, um, the Monticello, what is it called now? Oh, my gosh, you're going to have to edit this part out and clean it up. But um, <laughs> at, at the, the Monticello Wineries Association as well. So I was really becoming very heavily involved in both the regional efforts and the, the larger statewide efforts, not just for vineyards and wineries, but also for hospitality and all the other ancillary industries that make vineyards and wineries successful. So you also have to have strong restaurant ties and strong hospitality ties, specifically to um, hotels and bed and breakfasts and ends that can send you customers. And so I found myself getting involved in every tentacle of the business that I thought was necessary. Incredible. And before we move on, I don't know if we mentioned it. What was the name of the vineyard? Sugarleaf. Okay, Sugarleaf Vineyards. It's incredible again. Um, but from you know this vineyard, you also started um, LMB Group, and which is a strategic marketing and advisory company. Um, and so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how um, that went about. Um, and then, you know, secondly, um, if this experience sparked your interest in helping startups grow and um, seek opportunities not only for you as an advisor to these entrepreneurs, but as an investor as well. 
you know, I think that my interest in investing and advising, um, it was coincidental that it came about at the same time. I don't think that it was because of the work in L&B Group that made me, that sparked that interest at all. I think they were disconnected. It was just coincidental that they occurred um, at around the same time. Mm-hmm. But I think that, that it was a time when, you know, technology was beginning to have a footprint in New York. There was a big discussion around women in technology, and there was a big discussion around you know, people of color and technology. There was a big discussion around, you know, women-led businesses in general and can women have a place in the world of technology and startups. And so, you know, I think it was a conundrum uh, of events that really piqued my interest and sparked that curiosity for me. But, you know, ultimately it was, it was also good timing. Um, having just exited the winery and, and had that great, you know, liquidity event, gave me the freedom and the autonomy to be able to take those sorts of risks in being an angel investor and investing in startups. And, you know, some of them that I didn't really understand as well at the very beginning, um, you know, I began to advise and then watch where they go over time and, and felt more comfortable then with the upward trajectory of those businesses and then ultimately made investments there too. Mm-hmm. And so that led you um, consequently to, um, you know, start your own uh, firm, the Gen Y Capital. Um, and so just tell us a little bit about how that came about and how you decided to make that transition. Uh, I mean, that transition was also really an evolution. I think my entire career has been an evolution. I don't look at anything as really transitions. I think that everyone, you know, grows over time and your interests grow. And so I always think it's funny that people still tie me to being this winery owner when, you know, it's something that I started doing 12 years ago. And I've done so much, you know, really incredible stuff since then that, yeah. yes, it's, it's part of my journey and it's part of my story, but it's certainly not who I am today. That's who I was 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was the same evolution for Gen Y Capital. It was, you know, I was co-investing with some colleagues on, you know, early stage tech deals and I had access to certain types of deals. They each had access to, to different industries and deals in different verticals based on their experience and expertise. And we were all varied and diverse in that regard. And so we had a really active pool of deal flow and we were co-investing with each other. And then we had friends that were not in the world of tech that said, let us know when we can get in on this next deal or that next deal. And so it very quickly became, you know, we became like this access funnel, if you will. And so they said, we might as well have our own fund. And I said, yeah, well, we don't have time for that. And you know, we didn't have time for that. But we were, you know, in the right place at the right time with the right tools um, and everything that we needed to be able to execute. And so ultimately, we went on and started Gen Y Capital. Um, and again, it was just an evolution of interest and, and a little bit of serendipity. Lauren, tell us again, who were your LPs for that? Um, we have a lot of, of different LPs, but, you know, people such as a guy named Ziver Berg of Zyvelo, um, Jonathan Teo, Jeremy Johnson. Um, we have a guy named Jeff Avalon, who's from the founder of Idea Paint. Um, so, you know, Dave Kirpin of Likeable Media. There's a lot of different people that are that are in the fund as LPs. Not all that I can that I can divulge, but those guys I can certainly talk about because they are also active venture partners um, as well to our portfolio companies. So they actively um, roll up their sleeves and get involved in advising the companies that are in our portfolio as well. So we're, we're women investing in women, so we're kind of curious. Did you have um, decent women in- investors as LPs as well, or was it primarily male? 
balance? Uh, it was primarily it was primarily male. Yeah, that wasn't the focus. Um, you know, the focus was to be able to raise the fund. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and get up and, and running. So, yeah, no, primarily now. <laughs> Congratulations on getting it done. <laughs> That's oh, all that matters. Thanks. Well, what I think is great is that, you know, what we've talked so far is your journey um, and your evolution in, into the fantastic career that you have created for yourself. Um, and, you know, what we've covered so far is that you've had um, a background in entrepreneurship and investing. Um, so having those both sides um, as, as part of, uh, you know, your your career, um, what's maybe some of the greatest mistakes that you see entrepreneurs make when they seek capital, when they go to investors? And then from the investing side, you know, what do they want to see from invest, uh, entrepreneurs when they come and, you know, talk to them, seek uh, funding? I think that every investor wants to see an entrepreneur who has really done their research and their homework and who has identified, you know, what their, who their competition is and that they acknowledge that they have competition that they have a plan to either, you know, outwork them or beat them in some way. And if the plan maybe isn't for some reason to beat them, that they have a, a plan to merge in some way or, you know, that there is a game plan around, um, you know, the, the various factors of competition that are out there because I find that most entrepreneurs um, are brainwashing themselves so much into, you know, I can do this, I can do this, that they start, really walking this talk of there's no one else out there that's going to be bigger or better than me. Mm-hmm. And there is always someone there that's going to be potentially bigger or better than you or that has a shot at taking your share of the market away. And so I always look for entrepreneurs who have identified what those other factors are and, and they've also identified how they're going to work them into ways to either better the business to refine the business and be based on holes that they see the competition has or how those that kind of weight of the competition is going to just keep them on their toes um, and keep them innovative and keep them lean and keep them, you know, at the cusp of evolution. So I like to see that sort of an answer. I also find that entrepreneurs, um, you know, oftentimes aren't always assembling the advisory board that they need in place to help the company navigate the challenges that they're going to encounter in the startup journey. And, you know, likewise, I think that entrepreneurs should be looking for investors who sincerely believe in what they're doing and who don't just want a piece of the pie because it's a good financial decision, perhaps, but who actually believe in whatever it is that your company is doing and building and creating in the ways in which you want to change the world. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think it's really easy to get money in general. I think it's much harder for the entrepreneur to get what I like to call smart money or strategic money, which is someone who can add far more to the to the picture than just capital. Absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit about, um, you know, your role in um, advising entrepreneurs as an investor um, in your role on Quit Your Day Job. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but for right now, it almost seems that you talk about the, um, the way entrepreneurs and investors interact with each other like a relationship. And it has to be symbiotic for it to work out, it seems. And so how do entrepreneurs make that step to find those investors that will be passionate about what their business is about um, and, and have smart money, to be rich with um, a fantastic network of investors that really believe in what they're doing? You know, that's, that's hard. And I think it's becoming harder and harder as it's becoming more difficult to discern who's genuine in the world. (laughs) But, 
you know, I think that, I think that when you, you'll hear this a lot that people will say, oh, um, you know, when you're meeting with a new investor or potential investor and an entrepreneur, it's just like dating. And that's a great analogy because it's, it's true. It is like dating in a lot of, in a lot of senses. Um, but I think you have to almost ask them to work alongside you a little bit. I do think that one of the largest handicaps of an entrepreneur is that they're so uncomfortable sharing what their company is or sharing what their idea is for the fear that someone will take it from them, right? How right. often am I asked to sign an NDA? And I'm like, I'm not signing an NDA before I even know anything about your business. Like you tell me three words, you want me to sign an NDA. I can't do that because I can't, I have no idea, but you can't be that afraid to share because at the end of the day, a good entrepreneur boils down to execution. I've heard the same ideas so many times from so many different people and how many actually go on to start that business and execute on them. Honestly, I'm guilty of it as well. I have so many ideas in my mind that um, I haven't yet pushed forward on because I'm not ready to execute on them. That doesn't mean that I won't share them because the more you share them, the more that you you actually have the opportunity to you know, engage people in, in receiving feedback and maybe even refining the idea. And so I think that a lot of these entrepreneurs are keeping their ideas bottled up because they're so afraid of sharing what they think is proprietary when it's not or sharing what they deem to be confidential when it's not. And you almost really, you know, shoot yourself in the foot because I think the best way to find that strategic money, that smart money investor who's going to do more for you than just write a check is to allow them to understand a little bit more about your business and a little bit more even if it's just sharing in the early stages, hey, I'm encountering this problem or I'm not sure if I should take path A or path B, you know, to a lot of entrepreneurs, it's like, oh, well, I'm showing my weakness. But it also gives you the opportunity to litmus test your potential investor and see how they would look at, you know, how would they act if they were a board member? How would they act? What would their advice be if they were already invested? It allows you to have a peek into not just their credentials because those are clear, those are easy to find and easy to research, but actually how they would operate with you, alongside you in your business. If the way that they think and the strategies that they employ are complementing um, are complementing and helpful to the larger vision for your company. If their approach to problem solving rubs you the wrong way or is exactly what you need and empowers you and inspires you and motivates you in the right time in the right way. And so I, I, I think that getting to work with the investor or potential investor a little bit even early on to, to gauge how they look at these sorts of things are really important. And I think that's how you, that's how you ultimately match with the right investor. I think it's easy to do the, I'll meet you for drinks. I know a lot of people in tech meet for ping pong or for <laughs> pool and all these like icebreaker activities. I think they're great, but they, they may help you get to know that person on a personal level. And there's lots of people that I like personally that I have no desire in working with as an example. I think everyone is that way. So I think the more vulnerable you are as an entrepreneur to say, hey, I'm encountering these issues or I'm thinking about doing this or I'd like to get your opinion on what, what do you think about this will allow you to actually know if they will be valuable to you above and beyond their dollars. So, Lauren, um, regarding the NDA, I'm going to make one comment. So um, when it comes to concept, I agree with you. Sharing is caring and sharing is important. But when it comes to financials and disclosing, you know, your your long term strategy, these numbers, um, the heart of 
of the business model and whatnot, do you recommend having an NDA in place or do you, do you suggest that they disclose that information as well? Well, I suggest, um, it's funny because I actually just said this to someone the other day. I say that if you can't, if you as an entrepreneur cannot describe your business enough in simple terms that don't violate what you deem to be protected and privileged information, then you're not doing a good enough job as an entrepreneur of explaining your business. I'll take an example of something like, let's call it a Snapchat. If you, as the entrepreneur, being in this case Evan Spiegel, but because we're on Women Investing in Women, let's say that it's not Evan Spiegel. Instead, it's Michelle Jaffe, okay? (laughs) And you are the Evan Spiegel, and you're out here trying to raise money, and you're like, well, I've started this new thing, but I can't tell you about this thing, but it's going to be really cool, and it's going to be like 10-second video, and that's all I can tell you um, until you sign an NDA, that's not enough information for me to even think I want to sign an NDA. And if you, Michelle Jaffe, as in this hypothetical scenario, are the founder of, in this hypothetical scenario, the future Snapchat, and you can't find a way to describe your business to me that it's going to be 10-second videos looped into stories and that you're going to have a proprietary technology that makes it easy to record and share this video, to record, share, and filter this video, and to stream it into one continuous loop of videos. If you can't come up with something like that that allows you to at least explain this company to me to get me excited enough to want to learn more without violating what you deem to be things that are protected by an NDA, why would I invest in you as an entrepreneur? Right. Right. No, it totally makes sense. So I I say all that to say that I don't think that people should put the NDAs aside, but I think that the NDAs are there for once you've closed with an investor. It can be part of your investor packet. It can be... As an investor, you as an investor and normally as an advisor, you will become privy to privileged and confidential information. Correct. Therefore, we need you to sign an NDA. But it's not speculative. It's you are now in the deal, you're a part of the family, and we're going to share trade secrets with you that are going to help us grow this business. You've got skin in the game. We need to protect ourselves and we need to protect the business. You know, understand, and appreciate that as well. Very different from hi, I'd like to have a prospective meeting with you and discuss a variety of different things, but I want you to sign an NDA before I tell you more. So I think that the entrepreneur has to learn to, has to learn how to share what's most important. Terrific. And that's a great note to end on. Um, stay tuned if you're a premium member of the State of Women Radio Network. We're going to talk more with Lauren about uh, her role as co-star and Quit Your Day Job and about her book called The Path Redefined, Getting to the Top of Your Own Terms. To engage with us, be sure to go to facebook.com slash womeninvesting or on Twitter, follow us at at womeninvesting. Thank you for everyone who is listening in. You've been listening to Women Investing in Women and Girls. The show is produced by the State of Women Radio Network, the first radio network for women and girls. Remember, if you're a premium member, be sure to stay on and hear more of our fabulous conversation with Lauren. But for right now, I'm your host, Michelle Jaffe. And I'm Anu Bardwaj. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Women Investing in Women and Girls. Our discussion continues as we dive in even deeper for our premium subscribers. Click the link for information on exclusive access, premium content, and ad-free listening. Subscribe to our podcasts, join in the conversation on Facebook, and find all of the information you're looking for at thestateofwomen.com.